Well, good morning. Of course, today is a uh, communion Sunday, and so we do things a little bit different, as Kevin was mentioning, and we have an opening song, but then we have the message, and then our worship. And on communion Sundays, we are studying the Psalms, and we're studying them to deepen our sense of worship and to give us something or to give us a way to respond to God in our worship to Him on these Sundays. And so... Today we are in Psalm 25, once again. You can turn your Bibles to Psalm 25. And originally we looked at this psalm last time. There's a few deep themes that run through Psalm 25. One of those themes had to do with the the great sense of burden over the sin in our lives. And David struggled with that in this psalm. And then we looked at the relief that he was able to receive from the pardon of God. And we learned in that theme in Psalm 25 that when we feel the sense of guilt and we want that burden relieved, that we don't turn to our own works, we don't turn to ourselves. But in that psalm, as we will read, he pleads for the mercy of God. He pleads for the goodness of God. So that's how we find our relief from our burden of guilt is through the grace and the mercy of God. This morning, we're going to to look at the other strong theme that is in this psalm. And that has to do with knowing God's ways. And that's what the psalmist is singing about in this song. So, knowing God's will or knowing the ways of God. That's something very practical for us today. Everybody, especially in evangelical circles, I think, Really, it's really become very important for us to know the will of God. It's become somewhat of a staple of evangelical teaching. And we we become Christians and we're immediately introduced to the, the disciplines of Bible study and prayer and fellowship and service and tithing. And one of the things that we find ourselves using those disciplines is... Knowing God's will. We're praying about knowing God's will. We're looking at our Bibles to try to figure out God's will. Where do I serve? Should I go on this mission trip or not? God, uh, is this the person? Is this the one that you have for me to marry? How many children should I have? Where should I work? Should I continue to live in the same place? God, how do you want to direct me? What do you want to do with my life? And so we have a lot of important questions that we often ask God. What kind of puppy should I get, Lord? I really want a dog. Or, God, is GMC and Chevy still your favorite truck? Or is there another one that I should look at as I think about a new vehicle? The interesting thing about knowing God's will is that when you research this topic, you don't find a lot written about it until approximately 50 years ago, which is approximately when I was born. I don't know if there's a correlation or not. But really, when you look, if you go all the way back to the church fathers, Augustine and Anselm, very, very little is written about knowing God's will. And then if you look at the Reformation and you look at Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, there's very little written about it. And even um, Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian, It's not until about 50 years ago that these scholars and theologians really started to kind of focus in on the importance of knowing God's will. And I'm not exactly sure why that's the case, that we've kind of discovered it. Maybe it's because we are such an informed culture and we just want to know everything that we can. 
we don't like not knowing things. Um, we want to know what tomorrow holds. Maybe it's because technology has kind of created that kind of appetite for us. I mean, we have a 10-day forecast now where we can know the weather, supposedly. Even though it changes every day, they still give us the 10-day so we can know what is to come. And I think we just kind of want to know these things. We don't like the idea of not knowing. Uh, that's, maybe that's what it is. We're big planners. Our forefathers seem to be just more comfortable with understanding that God's sovereign, providential, and just seeking Him. Uh, apparently, was they were content with that, knowing that, well, He's got my back. He's watching over me, and I'm... I'm seeking Him and He's bringing things into my life and He is guiding me along. We're not quite as comfortable with that today. And it is not a bad thing to want to know God's will. It's a good thing to want to know God's will as long as we don't become too obsessed with it. And I think it's possible to become too obsessed with trying to hear God. Because God doesn't always speak to us as we will see in this psalm when we want to be spoken to, or in the way that we want to be spoken to. But it is very important. And God does have a unique plan for every life. You think about Ephesians 2, and some of this was read in Sunday school this morning. It talks about we're saved by grace, not by works, but by grace through faith. And then in Ephesians 2, verse 10, he goes on, the Apostle Paul, and he's speaking to us, the saints, He says, for we are God's workmanship created to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. And and it just opens up this whole new realm of before I even came into existence, God had my life planned and not just my life, but he had planned for me specific works to do to bring him glory in the kingdom. I mean, it's just incredible how personable God is for us and, and how everything that happens in our lives when the Holy Spirit comes in, the good, the bad, um, is, is rolled into this beautiful plan that God has for us. And our lives are not identical. You know, we're not all identical twins, so to speak, in the kingdom of God. Each life is unique and he, he's forming and fashioning you and strengthening you in areas that he's not strengthening me or, or, or crafting me in. And so there's areas of ministry, there's areas of service that you can do, works you can do for God that I wouldn't be as effective in. There's people that you can reach that I would not be in as effective in. I mean, if you just look around this congregation, you look at the different walks of life. We have different jobs that you have, different schools that you go to your different circles, you can reach people that we can't in, in a way that we can't. And I would say that's by God's design. If you're a believer, there's this craftsmanship that's going into our lives. There's nothing random about where we are, what we're turning into when you're a believer. C.S. Lewis says we all have our own story. We just, it's, it's unique. We all have our own path. We all have our own story. <clears throat> So we can know God's will. But if, if we can know God's will, how does it work? Well, let's look at Psalm 25 and glean from God's holy word through his servant David this morning. 
I think I'm just going to read. We read it last month. It's been a month. I'm sure you remember every word of it. So I'm just going to read the first 15 verses this time since we've read it through. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your steadfast love. Remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be Gracious to me, and he continues on. And I'll just stop there. I'm sure you picked up on principles just by reading that psalm. They just kind of jump out at you as far as what does it take? How does learning the ways of God work? I want to look at four specifically this morning. And first of all, I want to look at the idea that you have to be saturated in the Word of God. If you want to know God, if you want to know what God is saying, what He's speaking... To you, we have to saturate ourselves in the, the reveal, revealed word of God. So before we can know what he might have planned for us specifically, we want to know what he has planned for us through his revealed word that he has said to all mankind, not just us. But there are a lot of things that God has said to all of us. There are laws that he's placed He's, there, there are boundaries that he's put in place. There are promises that he's given to all of us that apply to all of us. Exhortations, warnings, every kind of communication that is out there, God has communicated to us in his word. So what has he already said about himself? What has he already revealed about me? I think a great New Testament passage to consider when we really want to know the ways of God is in Hebrews 5:13 through 14. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. It's a profound portion of Scripture because 
What he's saying is that there are elementary principles, there are things in the Word of Righteousness, the Word of God, that are very, very easy to understand. Even children can understand that. The plan of salvation, for instance. The fact that we're sinners and that God saves sinners through the atoning blood. Um, that, that's very simple and can be understood by all. But that's not how you grow. It might be how you come into the kingdom, but that's not how you grow. And there are powers that we can grow in of discernment between the, the most important things in life. The difference between good and evil. Who doesn't want to know that? Especially if you're a believer. The difference between being wise and foolish. The difference between success and ruin, you might say. Or living before the Lord obediently versus disobediently. These are very, very important things we need to know. And the way we need to know them is through the word of righteousness, constant practice, constant study, constant digging in to the treasures of what is already revealed to us. And and what a powerful statement, because it's something that we're being told in the word of God right here and now that we can actually grow in. And there is a power in it. There's a power that comes in discernment. Like when you when you can look through life and 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 there's lots of trees and there's distractions, there's maybe smoke and fog. And you're able to just kind of look through all of these things and draw a bead on what's right and go for that. That's powerful in a believer's life when you can hear all of the things that are going on, all the experimental philosophies and even experimental religions And all the false things, but because you have saturated yourself in the word of God and you know it so well, they don't stick to you. You don't fall for these things. And the only way that we can do this is by pressing in and taking the necessary time to read these words that have been given to us from heaven. There's no shortcuts. And you think, wow, if it's. If we can have this wonderful power of discernment and wisdom, why don't more believers do that? That's a good question. I can only speak for myself, but, you know, there's times in my life when I don't do that. And it's just because I want quick answers. I want the easy way out. I want to find another way to know what I really want to know without doing the hard work. And there there are kind of shortcuts, but they're not real Shortcuts are not reliable shortcuts. And uh, as a new believer, um, what I would try to do is kind of feel my way around the kingdom of God. I went by emotion and feelings because I didn't really know all that God had written. And that was kind of not a very good way to get around the kingdom because I was wrong a lot. Uh, Trying to wait for that feeling that I thought, was that from God or not? Well, look at that. And that's actually something God uses in our lives. The promptings, the feelings, the the tingling sensations that sometimes we have in the presence of God. And sometimes we rely upon to know God's will for us. That does play a part. But that's last. It's one of the last things we need to look at, because I would say uh, that's not the first thing we want to go to when we really want some kind of important decision. Before the Lord. Um, That's more feelings oriented. 
And I've known, sadly, I've known people that have relied, Christians, dear Christians that have relied on their feelings to know the, the will of God and have felt certain about things, the direction that God wanted their life to go. And it never happened. And they're, they're sha- almost incapacitated for, for sometimes years like, God, I don't know what to do with this. I was just so sure you told me this is what I was to do and it's just not happening. It's, it just doesn't seem to, to be the path. And I, I don't know what to do with this because, I mean, are you talking to me or not? And it's, it's sad to see how we can get stuck in places because... We were so sure that feeling was right. And, and maybe it wasn't. And that's not the intention that, that God would have us live in confusion. Now, his intention is for us to wait. We're going to see that too. Sometimes we just have to wait. But it's not to lead us astray. That does not come from the Lord. We want to be careful that we don't think that we can just as believers, talk about the song, I don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live in fear when we have a God like our God looking after us. We want to, we want to press in and saturate ourselves with this word because if we don't, we won't develop the skills that we need. We can't you take a child and put them in college or take a child and put them in the workforce. They're not going to make it. They don't have what it takes. And God wants us to grow from the milk to the meat and and develop these skills in the kingdom of God to hone these things. It's kind of like maybe learning a, la- a language or living in a different culture. So I went to Guatemala a few times and I don't know Spanish. I took Spanish for a full year um, to show you what kind of student I was in high school. And I think I learned about 15 words that whole year. I still passed the course. But um, that's because, I don't, well, anyway, it was just. So I wanted to know enough words to survive in Guatemala. So I, before I went, a few weeks before I went, I just kind of immersed myself in a few things. I looked at Google Maps where we were going so I could kind of get the geography in mind, you know, in case I ever got, if you get lost or or dislocated or something like that. You want to kind of have an idea where you are and where's the nearest border to run to or something. Um, also, the, the words, you need important words. Where's the bathroom? Where's the good food? Um, where's, my, where's the people I was with? The Americanos, where'd they go? You know, there, there's just a few things you need to know in order to survive there. And so I knew that. But I was very vulnerable. I didn't like so if people were speaking Spanish, I didn't know what they were saying. Maybe I might pick up on one word. So I was vulnerable. I didn't really know what was going on. I didn't know all the nuances. And there's, you know, there are languages that if voice inflection, saying the same word makes all the difference in the world. So you could be you could be insulting someone instead of praising them. But you don't know that. And you can't expect to, to know your way around in a foreign land unless you really take the time to immerse yourself in it 
And you've got to take the time to study the language. And you want to surround yourself with as many people that speak that language as you possibly can. So you hear the inflections and you can ask all the questions. And that's what we're talking about when we saturate ourselves with the word of God. Otherwise, we're just living in a blur. A lot of times we're missing out on things. We don't know what God's doing in the kingdom. We don't know what he's doing in our lives. We have to do the hard work to do that. So we don't want to make the foolish mistakes. David says, teach me. Show me, God. Make me to know your ways. I want, I want to familiarize myself in this. So before we can perhaps know the specifics, we want to know what God has already revealed in his law. And there's much to say. There's much to learn in that. Secondly... I think jumps right out in verse 9. But who does God lead? Who does he show? Who does he inform? Well, he leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. You have to, if you want to know God's will, his ways, we have to be humble. It's part of the package and it's very similar to the meekness that Jesus talks about in the Beatitudes. That's kingdom living. And it's this idea that you're not so proud and arrogant that you think you already know all the answers. But you're teachable. When it comes to the word of God, you're willing. Truth is so important to you. You're willing to bow yourself down before it. You're willing to get rid of foolish or wrong opinions that you have formed through your life. Maybe even your own wrong theology about God. And you bow yourself to God, you bow yourself to truth. It takes humility to do that. That means we have to admit when we're wrong. And I'm sure you've been in the presence of those that aren't teachable. And it doesn't matter how many facts you have or how much evidence you have. They're right just because they're right. You you can't expect to know or hear God speaking to, to us if we have that kind of attitude where it's just going to kind of hit a a brick wall in our minds. We've got to be teachable and and resist the urges of the flesh that want to resist the Word of God. James says this in the New Testament, in chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. He says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So all of this wonderful word and truth can only be received with humility to the authority of God. A compliance, a willingness to be obedient to the truth. Truth becomes more important than our opinion. Some of us aren't there yet. Some of us, perhaps, we're still stuck in our opinion and we haven't submitted to the truth of God. But we can't expect God to speak or we can't expect ourselves to hear God loud and clear when there's areas of, of sincere disobedience in our lives where He's speaking to us loud and clear in the area that we need to know. And we're just not listening to it. 
because we haven't been humble about it. We haven't said, yeah, you're right, God, and I repent. I've been a fool. Humility, part of living in humility is just confessing and owning when we've done wrong. So in order to get on God's path, there has to be a willingness to to take whatever we can get in in our rightness and our wrongness to, to come under the table and even eat the crumbs that happen to fall on the floor where the dogs pick it up. If that's what it takes to get the truth, if that's what it takes to be led by God, are we willing to do that in humility? John Piper says, I feel the need to sound this warning. You cannot be saved from sin by the Christ of the Bible if you reject the Christ of the Bible. The Christ of the Bible is an authoritative advisor as well as an atoning Savior. So if we try to receive Him as an atoning Savior and reject Him as an authoritative advisor, all we receive is an imaginary Christ while rejecting the Christ of the Bible. Therefore, since we can't be saved by the Christ of the Bible, if we reject the Christ of the Bible, we will never make it to heaven nor enjoy the fellowship of God here if we don't aim to make the counsel of Christ decisive in the decision-making processes of our lives. And he goes on to say, suppose Christ comes to you and he says, by my death and resurrection, I have atoned for sin. And by my wisdom and knowledge, I can show you how to make choices that will bring you the greatest joy in life. Will you trust me? And suppose we say, well, I do want to be happy. I do like the idea of being guided. I love the idea of being forgiven of my sins and not having to live under that tremendous burden of guilt. But I've, I've looked over your guidelines. I've looked over the decisions that you have made and that you have written to us, your idea of what it means to be blessed and happy. So I accept your forgiveness, but I disagree with your path of righteousness and happiness. So I think I'm going to call my own shots in this area of my life and yet receive your happiness of being atoned for, for my sins. Is that the way it works? And Piper says, you know, what What would Jesus say about you as you turn to walk away? Well, we know exactly what he did say when that happened once. He said, in effect, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle and for somebody to enter the kingdom of God who thinks he knows more than Christ about the way to be happy. The way to live before God. See, that's, that's humility. You have to be humble because humility means sometimes we are earnestly asking God for something specific and He tells us something else. We weren't asking for it, but in His good grace, I'm not speaking to that right now, but here's what I am speaking to, and that's what we need to hear at that time. We, we, we don't want to pick and choose. You know, shut God out. Turn on the faucet only so that we're in control. A disciple, the disciple is a learner and a, a follower. So... If we really want to know God's will, there has to be that humility there because he might speak to us in areas. So maybe I'm, 
I'm a, a young person. I'm like, God, I, I just really need to know who I'm going to marry. That's a very important thing. And, and God might be saying, yeah, but I want to talk to you about how you're spending your time, your leisure. Look what you're doing in your life. You're wasting it. You're, you're self-indulging too much. Or I want to talk to you about how much you're working. You're working too much. You're not, you're not in fellowship. And this is an idol in your life. Humility is willing to hear whatever God has to say and submit to it. It's, it's arrogance when we put our wisdom above God's. And sad to say we do it far too often. I do it far too often when I think I know what's going to make me happier. Or please God more. Or please myself more. That's very arrogant. So we, we want to saturate ourselves in God's word and we want to be humble. And thirdly, we have to trust the Lord to hear from God. Verse 2, oh my God, in you I trust. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. Are we trusting God? Do we even trust him? If he does speak into our lives. Or do we only trust him if he tells us what we want to hear? What kind of conditions do we trust him to forgive us for our sins? Do we trust him to be our atoning savior? And do we trust him to be our authoritative advisor for that counsel in all decisions? And what does it mean in verse 10 for those who keep his covenant testimonies? A lot of times you think about keeping covenant. We, we immediately think, oh, I have to live perfect. I have to live perfect before God. Keeping covenant, we want to strive to live perfect. Obviously, he's laid out his commands and we're either obedient or disobedient. But part of keeping covenant means confessing and repenting when we've done wrong. I mean, the whole sacrificial system of worship is based on the fact that we're going to fail and we aren't perfect. And so we come and offer our sacrifices and we repent from the times where we have failed God. That's keeping covenant. That's covenant um, living. So it's not just that God instructs us only when we do the right thing. What did he say in verse 8? Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. It doesn't mean that we're never going to fail. And if we do fail, we've just blown our chance to ever hear from God. But when we do fail, we're still sinners. But he's going to instruct us as we repent. He teaches us. And those are the teachable moments. That we need in this beautiful covenant relationship that we have. So keeping covenant doesn't mean perfection. Of course, on God's end it is. But it means admitting our sins and going to him for our pardon for guilt. Turning to him as our only hope and respecting him and fearing him. In such a way that we want to try from the bottom of our hearts to never do anything that would detract or subtract from the awesome name and the beautiful God that we Sir, so can we trust him? Can we trust him to know what's best for our lives? Can we trust him in his sovereignty to be over us and his steadfast love? I really like verse 10. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. Because it's really the Old Testament version, or you could say this is the New Testament version of this Old Testament Verse Romans 8:28, which is one you are more familiar with, 
All things work together for those who love God. And these verses like this are teaching us as God's children to think bigger of God than we do. God is God. And he, he, he doesn't need us to live in perfection or to make every right decision in order for the, the final outcome to be the same. God, he, he just is so good that even with all our failures, even with unbelievers in the mix of the, the way that the world is going, the, the paths are going to come out in his favor every time because he is running things. And he's not up in heaven wringing his hands in a, in a huge sweat when we make a wrong decision. Because he's God. And, and that's the kind of God we want to trust. We have to think bigger of him. Things still come out. He's already written the future. It's already there. We already know what's going to happen. That's how good he is. You say, well, but what if I misbehave or what if... The whole world rejects him. There's just things that are going to happen because God is God. And these verses tell us that all these paths that we take, God is so good that he's still going to bring us to where we need to be. And he's still going to get the glory in all of it. So we often wring our hands between what was the jackpot between door A or door B or door C. What God, if what do I do if I make the wrong decision? I want to please you. I want to honor you. But what if I make the wrong decision? What if I marry the wrong person? Or what if I move and, and I sell my house and I move here? I go into the mission field or I do this and it was the wrong house to buy or the wrong decision. Then what? My life is ruined, right? No. You're a child of God. We don't live in that kind of fear. The amazing thing about God is you can take the wrong train five times and still wind up where God wants you to wind up. Because he's a sovereign God. And so the, the emphasis on scripture isn't that we're so good and perfect and discerning. It's that God is so... It's the opposite. God is so good and perfect and discerning. And we just do the best we can down here with what we have to work with. Of course, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And arrogance would say that I can get it right all the time based on my... Profound knowledge of God's word and my ability to discern. We do the best we can and that's important to God. But the emphasis is God is good. God is wise. And he has these paths for us. You think about the deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And you look at all that. What they went through. And you get a commentary. You get little commentaries from God throughout. And um, even though they're striving to do the right thing, sometimes they're believing. Most of the times they're not. They're rebelling. They're turning to idols and so forth. Basically, what my summary taken from Deuteronomy is God is saying, look, I'm, you're, you're my children. I have chosen you. And I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to take you out of slavery. And I'm going to walk you through the desert. As a people, I'm going to to give you shade where there's no shade. I'm going to provide food and drink for you where there's no food and drink. I'm going to protect you from your enemies. Your shoes aren't even going to wear out. And you're you're going to whine. 
and you're going to complain and you're going to rebel and you're going to forsake me. And I'm going to bring you into the land of promise and it's a land of milk and honey and you're going you're to follow after false idols. You're going to forget about me. You're not going to worship me in the right way. You're not going to worship the right God. But I made a commitment to you. I made a covenant with you. And I will never leave you or forsake you. Amen. I mean, what do you do with that? I mean, that's, that's how big God is. And that's how trustworthy God is. It's, it's incredible that though we can make all these mistakes and be so evil and sinful, God is just so much better than we are evil. Jacob's life. I mean, he double crosses his own father and brother, lies, deceives the rascal, right? He's kicked out of the family. He has to leave home because he has been so wicked and sinful. And he goes out and what happens? He finds the love of his life. And then, of course, he's double crossed and deceived and lied to because there are consequences when we make foolish decisions and we rebel. It's, that's not what this is saying. It's hard. We're making it hard on ourselves when we do that. But in the end, look what happens. He comes back into the promised land. He fulfills God's purpose. The line of Abraham goes through him. He becomes Israel. I mean, look at how trustworthy God is. And in that sense, rather than wringing our hands, you do the best you can. You love God. You trust him. You're humble. And you just let God be God in your life. We have to trust Him. So we've got to saturate ourselves in the Word of God. We've got to be humble. And we have to trust Him. And then lastly, you have to know the guide. Look at verse 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him. And He makes known to them His covenant. Literally, the Hebrew reads, The secret of the Lord is with them that fear Him. The, the secret. Um, and that word secret is the word used like the inner counsels. Yeah, the, well, the secrets of God, the inner counsels of God that have not been revealed to everybody. This is the more personable kind of friendship that we can have when we commune with God in this way. Hear his, his, ver, his voice in accordance with his revealed word when we humble ourselves. He will reveal things to us that we need to know when we need to know them. He, he will find a way to guide us in the way that we shall go. It's not always maybe what we're looking for, but he will find this so that we find that path. And I, I would say that the, the promptings that sometimes we do get, the feelings, um, the tingling sensations that are from the presence of God alone. That, that kind of discernment comes at the end of the train, if you will, when we're humble and teachable and so forth. And we get to, we've pressed in so much, we really are learning the language. We're learning kingdom land. And we, we've grown in that area. And we can even begin to discern our own feelings, whether that really was from God. i got to tell you, I have been really wrong with my feelings in my relationship with God. Um, very seldom have I been wrong when I did the research, the due diligence to know God's will. But the, the least reliable, I would say, 
for saints is to rely on your feelings to know the will of God. I think it's, it's one of the ways he uses, but I would say probably the least reliable way. The way that we can be, we can just not get right because, I mean, you're talking about our emotions. Our emotions fail us every day. We're impulsive. Um, they're good. They're wonderful. God created them. And man, what a good feeling it is to have that kind of inspiration and prompting from the Lord. But we just want to be careful. And, and it's always, of course, in accordance with, in the same direction with God's revealed word anyway. It's never in tension with the revealed word of God or we, our emotions are just wrong. It has to be in accordance with what he's already spoken to us. So the wiser we get, the more mature we get, we will be able to discern these promptings. The spiritual goosebumps that sometimes we get. And sometimes that means waiting. But you notice that several times David talks about. It's almost like he's saying, I know that knowing your will means waiting, so I'm going to wait. It's almost like, you know, it's the kind of thing we don't want to do. If you insist, Lord, then I will wait. Verse three, indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame Five, for you, I wait all day long. And 21, for I wait for you. Our emotions can rush into things, right? We can be impulsive. Oh, I know this is it. This is it, God. Surely this is what you want for me. But waiting for the word to come, for that peace of God to come, for the spirit to to do his creative work in our hearts is very, very important. We want to just walk in like and use God, like a palm reader, I just want to go in here. I want to open the Bible. I want my palm to be read so I know my future so I can walk out and then I know what direction to go. But we need the guide. We need the guide for these things. We have to know the guide. What we want is the map. Give me the map of my life, Lord, so I can see where I'll be ten years from now. That way I can plan ahead. Um, And... I know what to watch out for. I don't have to worry, right? Because I already know what's going to happen. Just give me the map of my life. And I think it just makes a lot more sense for all of us. And what we really need is the guide. So, in closing, J.I. Packer gives this illustration. Say you're lost. You're driving around. It's an illustration, but probably a lot of us have been in this place before. Especially if we are directionally challenged Um, if you're lost and you're driving around you drive up to a corner you see somebody who looks like he's local he knows the way and you say i'm trying to get to such and such and the guy looks at you and hmm okay well you're trying to get up there that's that's going to be really tricky uh but but here's how you do it so he starts drawing this map you know sharp turns and landmarks and everything and you're just kind of like you're already lost of of where he's trying to take you and and you look at him and he looks at you and he sees you're clueless and so he says tell you what i'm going that direction if you can wait just a few minutes i get off work i'm going that direction i can take you right there i can give you the map if you if if you want to get there in a hurry and risk taking a wrong turn but I can go with you. Um, I'll just get in the car. So he gets in the car and he, now he becomes your guide. 
He says, if you have the map, I'm sorry, when you have the guide, it's much better. Because even though you don't have any idea where you're going, you're getting play-by-play direction and guidance. You still don't know how to get there yourself, but when it's time to take a turn, you take a right. And then the guide will say, okay, now right up here, take a left. And then when you see that tree, take a right. That's all he tells you. He doesn't tell you the rest. All you know is while you're going down the block where you're going to, and after that it's up in the air, and then he says, go here and go there. What do you have? You get the guide. And that's what we want to think about as we, want, as we strive to know God's word, God's ways, and God's will for our lives. Not the map, but God himself. The guide and, and listening to his voice and being in tune with him. It's that relationship with the guide. Because our sinful selves will run away with the map without the guide, won't we? We want the guide. And we get piece by piece that way. Keller says, the Bible teaches us guidance is really not something God gives you. It's something he does for you. The Bible doesn't talk about that much, how to get guidance. It talks about the kind of person who's guided. Until you understand that, you're going to be very frustrated. It's one of the reasons why, in some ways, up until the last few decades, Christians didn't even come to the Bible and notice the issue of guidance. They didn't have a category for it. We do. And now that we have it, we have to make sure we let the Bible inform us. God's ways. So we want to saturate ourselves in the Word of God and be humble and trust Him and press in to know our guide. Now let's, may God bless the preaching of His Word. Now we have an opportunity to continue to worship our awesome God through praise songs and then communing in the presence of the Lord. So guys, if you come up.